to Elevator Bullpen, the penultimate episode of this season. Uh, so after two experiments, uh, we're going back, and it's fitting that we are doing uh, the other major sci-fi franchise uh, after doing Star Trek to open the season. So our penultimate episode is Star Wars, and uh, we do have a special episode for the season finale, which we'll get into near the end of the episode explaining how that will work. So, uh, without further ado, I pass it over to Josh to pitch his Star Wars project. Hello there. Today we're exploring the galaxy far, far away with its many possibilities. So, for my pitch, I present to you Freedom of the Force. Oh, I'm a massive animation fan, and I think when given the right serious direction, Star Wars is a perfect fit for animation. So, I knew from the get-go I wanted my pitch to be an animated one. Uh, we all know how massive the CGI Clone Wars show was, uh, it's animation style that started off really rough, really bad when it first came out. With that, you know, poor attempt at a movie that was just meant to be, you know, free TV episodes that the studios <laughs> were like, quick, mush it together and put in the cinemas. It's like, but we're not done yet, just just do it. Uh, it was practically unfinished. They have come a really long way since then. They have fine-tuned that style. And now today with the recent Tales of the Jedi, it's really fantastic. However, for this pitch, I want to distance myself from the Clone Wars and Rebels uh, CGI look. As a kid, I loved the 2003 original Clone Wars animated series that used 2D designs in a really stylistic way. Uh, it was pretty light on story, but it more than made up for with style. The, you could just feel the impact of the action scenes. And more recently, we've had the first series of Star Wars Visions, uh, the anthology series that has so much variety in styles and the tones. Uh, a great way to explore what animation can do in a Star Wars universe. So, in my head, I picture this pitch visually to the same style as a Visions 2D episode. If I had to pick a particular Japanese animation studio who worked on Visions and give them a hypothetical million dollar budget to make the pitch in my head a reality, it would be a toss-up between Cinema Citrus and Production IG, who were behind The Village Bride and The Ninth Jedi episodes, respectively, some of my favourite episodes in that first series of Visions. As for what I would have them create, it would be a big upgrade from a 20-minute anthology episode. Uh, before I continue, Carl, do you have any thoughts on those animated series? No, uh, I mean, I like the, the original 2D animated Clone Wars thing. Was, uh, when it came out, Like it was a very big deal for me. I remember being super excited about that, because uh, it's the guy who did Samurai Jack. <laughs> and Samurai Jack uh, was uh, pretty influential. Uh, into my tastes of animation uh, when I was a kid, because that was, like, all the rage at the time. So I really liked that stuff, um, and uh, it gave one of my favorite minor Star Wars characters a lot to do. Her name is Shakti. Uh, I loved her in that. I was super excited to see her um, and kicking ass. I, I've watched bits and pieces of, of the, uh, the CGI Clone Wars one. Uh, the, the the aforementioned movie, uh, I did go see in theaters with my entire family, and I'm like, I, I like the, I like the show, but I never, I, I, I fell off after a while, I just, it wasn't my style, but it was enjoyable. Uh, outside of that, I have not watched Visions, so I cannot attest to any of the, um, Pacifics, uh, on, on those, but no... I think Star Wars would be really great in animation, and it's been proven to work very well in animation. So you got you you're already on starting on good ground here. So my story, Freedom of the Force, would be a two-part animated movie duology, in a similar vein as the Netflix Godzilla anime trilogy in 2017, starting with Planet of the Monsters. 
feel a back-to-back two-part movie, each one roughly 90 minutes, would help give the story a sense of bigger scope, also keeping it tight enough so there's no filler or padding that I feel often comes with the more recent Star Wars shows. Contemplated making this a trilogy, but I felt in my head that it would stretch out the plot too much and lead to comparisons to the main three movie trilogies, which is something I would ideally want to avoid. I was mainly inspired by the behind-the-scenes disaster of the Hobbit movies, as they were originally meant to be two films before they were stretched out into a trilogy, something I think most of us can agree on was a pretty bad mistake. <laughs> so part one would give us plenty of time to set up the four main characters' journeys, their backstories, dynamics with each other, and a big threat that they face. Part two, possibly with the new title of Unity of the Force, would throw audiences right into the thick of action. Uh, for the sake of attempting some kind of brevity in the show, I'll be focusing largely on events of part one of this pitch day, with a couple ideas of part two thrown in later to give a general shape of the idea, with some wiggle room for you and the audience to fill in the blanks, should you so wish. I decided to set this roughly around the same time as phase two of the High Republic, uh, which I'll quickly mention is something that's made me love Star Wars over again, this new sub-series that they're doing, uh, exploring Star Wars well before The Phantom Menace, it's a breath of fresh air for me, so I wanted to kind of tap into that. Uh, it's a period where the frontiers of the Outer Realms were being explored once again after the massive wars of the past, where they're attempting to connect everything via network relays. Maybe a couple faces will pop up now and then. Yoda, uh, Yarrow Poof, because those guys are bloody ancient in the Star Wars universe, and some new characters from Phase 2 of High Republic. But this is an era with a mostly blank slate, with plenty of room for me to play around with new characters. And before I jump into the plot, I'd like to read a certain mantra from deep within the Star Wars lore that has been a big source of inspiration for this project and may give you and the folks a tease as to what's coming. Peace is a lie. There's only passion. Passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. Force shall free me. And that is the Sith Code. Uh, I take it that you're familiar with it, with you whispering along. Uh, yeah, uh, well... I played Knights of the Old Republic when I was a kid, and you had to memorize that shit to the past the trials in Korriban. So yes, I know the Sith code very well. I know the Jedi code very well as well. So yeah, that was exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. One thing that's really drove me nuts in uh, in the mainstream Star Wars stuff has been this lack of interest in delving into the Sith as an ideology. They're just the bad guys, and the Jedi are the good guys. Quite frankly, through viewed through them not being the main characters, the Jedi are fucked up and crazy and re religious fanatics, and I wouldn't trust them with a 10-foot pole. Uh, same goes for the Sith, but at least the Sith are honest. Uh, so they got that going for them. You know, the, the Sith and the Jedi are like this big, gigantic religion warfare going on. It's, it's Catholics versus Protestants. And uh, when people dig into that, that's super uninteresting instead of just going, one's light, one's dark, continue onwards, you know? I do know, because you've said a lot in the past, so much that <laughs> I even wrote it in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, with that in mind, I think you'll get a kick out of this story. I have a similar thought, and I think it'll kind of tap into idea. Uh, I love both Jedi and the Sith mantras. It's a great insight into them, but I don't think the movies really offer. Uh, and so yeah, let's jump in. This story will follow four characters, or perhaps it would be more fitting to say, follows four different perspectives on what the Force is. A lot of people, both in the Star Wars universe and our own real life, see the Force and the Jedi as one and the same. Jedi Padawan Shen Marek 
That is for the most part the case, as he sees the Jedi Orders as the hands for which the will of the Force works, to keep balance throughout the universe. They are helping servants to the universe. His duty is to be one of the many fingers of the Order, and while deep down he hates to admit it, to let a fear overcome him, he fears that without the Order, he is nothing. To borrow a line from the great Obi-Wan, that may be true, but only from a certain point of view. Jedi's connection to the Force is just one side of things. If the Force is this all-encompassing part of life, then naturally there would be conflicting views and names for it. With a young Norton called Hyro Palisian, he was raised to believe that the Jedi have allowed themselves to be slaves of the Force, that true power lies in using the Force as a tool for which the Sith have the right to claim their own freedom and force their own ideals of order upon others to create their perception of a utopia. Yet for most of his life, Hyro has found himself to be a tool to his own master. To Varna, daughter of the Night Sisters clan of Dathomir, there is magic. Immense arcane power they believe is drawn from the blood essence of the planet itself, using his powers for deception and manipulation only to serve their own reclusive way of life away from the rest of the galaxy. And on the lush planet Kelia, Megumi, Sakura and the rest of the village have a deep reverence for Magina, the local term for the Force, which they perceive to be the spirit of the planet through which they share the planet's memories and their own. All people, all different ideas on what the Force means to them, all about to come crashing together with one message broadcasting across the galaxy. On an odd union in the Outer Rim, a cacophony of starships of various models. Some are rackling messes kept in, kept in the family, some are gleaming top-of-the-range cruisers owned by wealthy families. It's an unlikely collective of ships and people to be travelling together all bundled in one. But they're all united in a quest, a pilgrimage formed by a message that was a hidden signal, accidentally picked up and broadcasted across the rims in the Republic's attempt to build connecting communication hubs. The message invites all to follow the coordinates ingrained with it, arrive at the system and discover the Lake of the Flame, supposedly the source of resurrection. Actually, this attracts some people. Everyone believes this message, as if resurrection could be possible. Not even the Jedi are that powerful. But to those desperate, or rich, and curious enough to give the quest a go, it is a powerful incentive to go off into the dark, unknown corners of space, to find a way to bring back the dead, or prolong one's own life. So it's very much uh, the Fountain of Youth type story thrown into the Star Wars universe, with all the twists and cosmic terrors that you can imagine would go with it. The public doesn't take much claim about the immortality being real, but are pretty concerned about the possible destruction that may transpire with all the ships racing each other to get to the source of the cryptic message. The Order themselves fear this may draw out the remaining remnants of the Sith, or possibly even be an ancient trap left behind by them. So, Torgruta Jedi Master, Areva Pilgar, and his human Padawan, Chen Merrick, are sent to keep track of the pilgrimage, like shepherds of the light, to step in any time a conflict takes place within the caravan and keep an eye out in case the so-called Lake of Resurrection does turn out to be real. For Chen, who spent most of his life with the same class of younglings he grew up with, this is his first real-time and extended company of people outside of the Order. Also keeping an eye out and to serve as assistant is a Republic Guardcraft, but its commander, Raynor Moran, has a bit of a chip on his shoulder about how intertwined the Jedi and Republic are, that it makes non-Force-sensitive guardians like himself feel pretty worthless, so he's got a pretty spiky relationship with Ravar. One of the paying guests on one of these faculty ships is Megumi, uh, a young woman healer who has spent her entire life on her birth backwater planet Kelia. Her village was a content one who respected the power of Magina, but were wary of abusing its power. However, Megumi grew curious when she heard stories of past events across the galaxy, of a war against two orders, of the powers that they wielded, the Force. 
for keen fans of Visions, this is indeed the same planet from the Village Bride episode. I'm making that world and Maginot now canon my hypothetical Star Wars universe. Because I love the idea that that episode proposed that just normal people could have a connection to the Force without making an entire religion based around it or defending the galaxy out of it. After the message of immortality was brought to her world, her curiosity to learn of the Force's connection to Maginot and learn how to use that power to help find ways to heal her people, she found herself compelled to ignore her family's warning and bribe her way onto a transport ship leading to the space pilgrimage. Some way behind a caravan of space vessels, keeping out of sight but deliberately tracking them is a single pilot stealth ship. It's a very out of date model to the rest of the galaxy, like it crashed on a planet years ago, battered from years of unuse. But to its pilot with a very limited experience of technology, it's both a wonder and a heresy. She is Varna of the Night Sisters, reluctantly sent on an off-world mission as a penance for a crime she committed against a fellow sister, to track the pilgrimage to the so-called source of immortality. As a Night Mother suspected is connected to a great crime done to clans of Dathomir several generations ago by a Sith Lord, Darth Kaldorf. More on that bloke later. And last, but most certainly not least, is a stowaway to the transportation vessel, Alone Nautilin. He's real rough looking. He looks like he's escaped a spice mine. He's missing tendrils, he's got scars all over him. But most striking of all, he has a metal box strapped to his back. Uh, it's a massive thing, has an awful resemblance to a coffin. Any attempts to get him off the ship uh, by the crew ends very badly for them. Lots of bloody noses, broken bones. He hasn't actually killed anyone yet, uh, but they are giving him a wide berth. Uh, they hope they can kind of just lose him behind once they reach the destination. In the end, the only one who can strike more than one full conversation with the brooding figure is Megumi. He warms up to her, but is still quite brooding, very antisocial, especially when it comes to questions about the purpose of the coffin. The furthest he goes in talking about himself is mentioning that his father recently, uh, his heart gave out, and that's led him to a bit of a quest. So our first big action scene is an attack by pirates, because naturally if you've got a bunch of rich folks all bundled into one place, in, a, an, in an essentially unsanctioned part of the galaxy, you're going to attract the wrong kind of attention. This leads to a lightsaber fight out in space with a Ravon Chen in spacesuits, jumping from hull to hull of various ships to repel the pirates, while Hyro brutally intercepts any pirates who made it inside. He's beating the crap out of these gangs, single-handedly. Uh, at one point he just pins the massive captain to the wall with just three fingers, and they're like, okay, no, this is crazy, we give up, we're cool, man. <laughs> uh, doing all this, Varna finds herself dragged into the conflict by mistake during a space fight. She has to get involved to fight back, revealing her presence to everyone. After this attack, uh, the main party discover Varna's, you know, identity, which leads to her detainment along with the pirates in one of the head ships by Raynor, the Republic Guard, and the pirate ships are towed behind the convoy. Now, at this point in galactic history, the necromancy witches of Dathomir, supposedly spawns of an exiled dark Jedi who can control the fearsome monster's rancors, are seen as just legends. A dark fairy tale, so Varna's presence here, while on a quest to find a source of resurrection, yeah, that puts a lot of folks in a convoy into a real excited frenzy. Like, this is a sign from the universe that this is real. Meanwhile, while everyone else is going crazy, uh, Areva and Chen take special interest in Hyro and Megumi, sensing the force in them. Megumi and Areva do get to discuss her past and her goal, and discuss the matter of the force, and Majinah being the same. What this means for her views on the village customs, as well as her questioning of the Jedi's customs now that she's learning about them, especially when she learns how young the younglings are taking their families into the Order. 
Uh, she questions if having a connection to this power should automatically demand lifelong duty from that person. So it's like what you were saying earlier, like on the outsiders, the Jedi, what they do is kind of freaky. Like they take mm-hmm. essentially kidnapping kids, separating them from their families, like a forced monkhood. So with Megumi, she's the outsider to the to the Sith and the Jedi. She has a connection to the Force, uh, not what that entails to the larger universe. Doing all this, Hyro sneaks into where Varna is being contained. They have a spiky, tense conversation to begin with, but essentially eases as Varna figures out Hyro is genuinely curious to learn about Dathomir. They swap stories about their upbringings, their missions, not the whole picture, but enough to understand what the other has been through, uh, that they've been sent by a big figure in their lives. And at the end of this mission lies the same figure they are searching for, Darth Kaldorf. So let's go into pause on my story to have a little Star Wars history lesson. Kaldorf is not my invention, he is a fairly recent obscure canon character introduced in the books about Sith myths. Uh, a Sith Lord Duros, who went about the universe trying to find Jedi and Sith relics. This guy was a freaky, hardcore badass. He wrote a book on controlling Sith war beasts, he betrayed his apprentice, turning him into living stone with a ritual. He let himself get stabbed in a fight with his Jedi rival, just so his enemy would be close and shocked enough by this that he could just decapitate the guy's head off. Perhaps most intriguingly, there was a legend involving Keldorf and the Night Sisters. It is said that he committed a great crime against the clan by stealing a burial pod when the Night Sisters stole their dead. The Coven sent a member, Zeldin, to use magic to get revenge against Dark Kaldorf by reaching out telepathically to get inside his mind to influence his actions and later try possess him. Yet Kaldorf, being the monster that he was, trapped Zeldin in a cage in his own mind. She's stuck in this now half-dead state so long as he occasionally remembers she's there. So what I got from digging for tasty lore on this guy was that his final fate has so far not been told canonically. So when I found out about him, I thought he would be a brilliant antagonist to adopt this pitch. Since I had planned from the get-go to include the Witches of Daphneir, uh, because I find uh, the Night Sisters, I find the whole deal in Star Wars Universe just fascinating. They first appeared in the now kind of Legends book Courtship of Princess Leia in the 90s, but since they never made canon in the larger Star Wars Universe, they are, they're very connected to Darth Maul, uh, and I wanted to explore them more in a bigger story. I was thinking with Darth Kaldorf, with him there's an opportunity to expand the story of the stolen Night Sister Corpse and create a bigger danger out of it. What if it was part of an experiment to discover the Night Sister's necromancing abilities and perfect it? Because that fits in so much with the Sith's you know, desire to live forever, to, you know, be uh, an everlasting monarch of their empire. Discovering, you know, this character, it helped give my character Varna a goal of her own in the story to track down Kaldorf, to reclaim the burial pod, and free Zeldin from a hellish torment. Uh, so back to the story, as Hyro heads out, Varna teases that she knows the type of death when she's near it. It's all around Hyro, a suspended death. On her world, they respect death greatly. They can briefly animate a corpse, but back to life, but they ensure that the living are the ones in control. Yet with Hyro, she can tell he's the one being controlled by death. Chen has been watching this change this whole time. He's suspicious of Hyro, but a wave of reasons Hyro hasn't proven himself to be a threat yet, and opts to keep a close eye on him. He tries to connect with both Hyro and Megumi to explain the Jedi better to them, that burden and duty don't have to be the same thing. Hyro is kind of off-put by this, like, wait, this guy is actually treating me with respect? Jedi? After everything I've been told by him? This is a trap, right? Why do I feel so good about this inside? This will be revealed bits by bits across flashbacks, but Hyro had a real messy upbringing. 
the adopted siblings he grew up around were either killed off or tried to betray him in force and combat training trials, leading him to having to kill his remaining brothers and sisters. All of that was overseen by Harrow's master, his father, if you will, Aldar Morvink, a man who collected force-sensitive orphans to try to weed out the strongest. So in short, this means Hyro's not used to positive role models in his life. So he's super cagey about all this understanding and respect he's gained from Megumi and Reva. Shortly, the caravan of ships arrive on an obscure moon in the outer room, as a signal indicated, uh, where there's a breathable atmosphere around this moon. Deep within the caverns lies the source of the signal, and supposedly, the lake itself. Aveva tries to keep the people of the convoy in line, but the Gradius family, they're like rich assholes who'll sell their own mother to make a quick buck, they break out and go down on the planet, force on Aveva and the Imperial Guards led by Vaynor to follow them, leaving Shen behind to try to keep control of the rest. He tricks Hyro into angrily displaying force powers, confirming his suspicions that Hyro had Sith-inspired teachings, leading the two to have a vicious scrap in the ship's hold. Hyro doesn't have his own lightsaber, but his anger and reflexes mixed with his hold over the Force makes his own fists a dangerous weapon. To put it in layman terms, Chen is getting his ass whooped despite all his Jedi training, because when you throw an academic in a life or death situation, he's not always going to step up. Gumi shows him in time to persuade Hyro from taking it too far. He makes his escape, freeing Vana with him, reasoning their search for the remains of Darth Kaldoff are tied together and that she can be beneficial to him. Totally not because he has any latent guilt about his sisters he let down, who Vana reminds him of. Nope, definitely not that. Feeling little choice, Shen follows him with Megumi stowing away upon the small shuttle. Uh, at this point in the story, which is say the halfway point, we jump back and forth for a bit across the different teams as they make their way through a network of tunnels, leading down into the core of this strange moon. Megumi and Shen are chasing Hyo and Vana, while avoiding Sith war beasts waiting in the tunnels while the Sith Apprentice and the Witch try not to stab each other in the back, and Areva is trying to keep both the guards and a rich Falking check and away from danger. Made pretty harder by the fact that the aristocrats uh, insist on bringing a bulking water tank to try to suck up a big chunk of this so-called lake. For research, and only research of course, no profit to be made from stealing immortal juice. No sir, not at all. Now, to borrow a popular phrase, that's no moon. As barren as the outside is, the inside is bizarre, warm, colourful. Gravity is broken in some sections of the underground realm, where huge bubbles of water and molten lava are suspended in the air, floating, merging and breaking apart at random. It's like a 70s lava lamp tinged acid trip, imprinted on a planet. Well, half a planet. We get this cool sequence of Hyro living up to his Norton heritage, diving in and out of the water bubbles, to lead on and trap the war beasts. Uh, he's free falling in the air, dodging lava flow, using the force to like throw the lava at the war beasts. It'll be like a scene that'll be really different to what we've seen in the movies before. During this fight, he loses the casket that's strapped to his back and he is freaking out from this. He's only saved from death by Varna essentially dragging him out of there. Finally, we get to the core of this world, all the characters reuniting to see a deep cavern leading to what everyone was seeking, Lake. In person, Perhaps a lake isn't the right word. More akin to a big pond of sludge and water. Gradius and the guards are naturally confused and angry about this. They're expecting something more mystical, serene, than this smelling slop in front of them. Yet all the Force sensitives in the group are stunned, its presence triggering their connections to the Force almost overwhelmingly. It's a raver who explains it best what the lake really is. It's life. It's 
purest, most ancient state. Leftover primordial ooze on a world that never fully got the right sunlight it needed for that final spark. The basic components of matter, including in this, in this case, an extremely high dose of midichlorians, the connecting microorganisms to the force. Areva theorizes that this moon was a remnant of the wellspring of life, a mythical planet claimed as a birthplace of the force, perhaps one of its moons on an aborted sister planet thrown off its orbit. For fans of the kinda not canon anymore intended final series of Clone Wars, uh, this was the planet that Yoda went to in the finale arc where he was exploring the force. And while in canon there are many planets that claim to be of places of the Force connected to it, uh, I wanted to explore this one a bit more. While a wellspring is strong in the light side of the Force, this place is neutral to the cosmic Force, but it would take just one wrong person to tip the scales. In the middle of this dark lake comes rising out just that wrong person. Darth Kaldorf makes his entrance at last. At least, What's left of him? His body has been decaying for years now. We see ooze espurging out of his skull. Some strange kind of flower is growing out of one of his eye sockets. His whole corpse has been kept from falling apart by the force and his willpower, amplified by the lake itself. Yeah, I want to go creepy with this, because every Star Wars <laughs> movie should have at least one just really out there moment. Speaking telepathically, he talks about how he was stranded on this world, around the time of the reign of the Sith Empire was dying off during his search for immortality, hoping to find a wellspring to combine its powers with the Daphimir Bureau ritual. Instead found its cast aside counterpart. He created a broadcast of its crashed ships to try to trick a rescue party to come. Specifically, a fellow Sith, knowing full well they're the ones desperate enough to find new ways to expand life, and he has sensed that it might just have worked. Areva steps up to defend Hyro. He talks about how the young boy was waylaid, but senses he has not fully given in to the dark side yet, that he doesn't have to be Kaldorf's puppet. And Kaldorf just coolly says, Oh, that puppet isn't a Sith I was talking about. The next ca adjoining cavern, we see the casket Hyro was so defensive over, hanged up on the rocks it fell down on. It opens up from the inside. Out comes a withered hand, crawling its way into the joint chamber with the others, holding tightly two lightsabers. Yeah, not so much a casket, more like a portable life support box that Hyro's master, Alda, was in this whole time, keeping his failing heart alive just long enough to, come, to take him to this source of life. Uh, here's a cage, a humanoid species with strikingly different colours. Uh, instead of the typical Jedi and Sith robes, he is wearing an almost overly fancy suit. He tries to give himself this air of a suave mastermind. He's coyly thinking his, his son for finally fulfilling his purpose and tries to present himself now as an equal to Kaldorf, as a new Sith Lord. But after scanning his mind longer, Kaldorf dismisses Alda, seeing that he isn't a true Sith. Uh, and even the Gradius family, they're like, hey, we know you. You're, we've met before. We've won tradings. You're like us. You're a rich asshole. So the reveal is he's just essentially a pretender to the throne of a Sith legacy. He has a bare minimum connection to the Force, a too afraid to get his own hands dirty, and so kidnap Force-sensitive children to do his bidding, to try weed out the strongest and then manipulate them through scare tactics. Kind of like in real life, you know, with uh, all those stories about the Nazis trying to steal you know, all these relics, like the Seer of Destiny, you know, supposed spear that stabbed Jesus, you know. He's just a rich asshole trying to collect big relics of power, to build himself up. Uh, at this point, Hyro is having a real crisis of faith. You know, he's been told his whole life that 
once they got here, this will be the point where he becomes his own master, and yet he finds himself still a puppet of his, you know, his messed up dad. And he's like, oh god, I killed my own brothers and sisters for a pointless reason. But, you know, he's still at the chain of his master, as it were. A big fight kicks off between Chen and Raver against Hiro and Eldar, with Kaldorf trying to take on all of them. You know, he's using the force to lift up flowers and the dark lake to, like, strangle, to bring them down. Uh, he's seeking to kill them all, to control their bodies, using a Dathomir ritual so that he will have servants to help take him off this world. During this struggle, while he's distracted, Armour initiates a ritual to telepathically reach inside Kaldorf's head and free Zeldin. Now, this is the point where the animation style would change, would get, like, real freaky, because I want to... That's the beauty of the animation. You can shake it up to really match the, the different tone, to, the, to match the setting. Uh, so it'd be more surreal in this scene. But this struggle proves too much for her. Zeldin is a mental phantom of her former self. Kaldorf's own mind is fractured by long-term exposure to the ooze. However, Varna's life is saved by Megumi jumping in, using her own experience with the empathy field Majina had on her homeworld to join into the telepathic fray, helping both Knight sisters by cancelling them through their panic attacks, reminding them of good memories of their home, their families, returning Zeldin back to her fell mental form, and finally breaking out of the cage she was trapped in for a century. She still lacks the strength to return her astral form to her physical body, so she essentially hops from one body to the next, now taking refuge in the body of her new sister, Varna. Varna herself is pretty overwhelmed by what just happened, and she's confused by like why an outsider like Megumi would help her like that after all the story, after all the xenophobic stories her clan has told about the outer universe. Doing all this, Adias and the guards are doing the exact opposite of helping. Uh, see, it looks like Vaynor and the Gradias had made a deal, and that. Uh, they're using a tank to suck up a huge chunk of this water and bring it back to the Republic, with Raynor hoping that this will prove to the Senate that him and his men don't need to depend upon a Jedi. Force wielders just make things more messy, we should depend on ourselves to get things done. During a struggle on both sides, Raynor is killed by the two Sith. Both his and one of Alda's lightsabers is just snapped in two. Raynor's last act was trying to save both Hyro and his Padawan. Chen is heartbroken, all the Jedi teaching is thrown out the window as he tries to hack the Dark Force users down. He's nearly killed. To his surprise, Hyro joins his side. Finally at breaking point, he's screaming about how the Sith were meant to be masters of their own destiny, not eternal slaves. And now that his time he lives up to the religious codes his master had twisted to serve himself. Overwhelmed and, quite frankly, just an absolute loser posing as a master, Alda runs away and together, Hyro and Chen, two Force users, having now both lost their masters and questioning their place in respective sides of the force, combine their force powers to finally destroy the physical form of Kaldorf. The guards and the Gradius family have made it out of that cavern, with a now filled to the brim containment tank, nearly torn apart by wandering war beasts, till they're now reinvigorated by the ooze Aldar shows up, casually breaking the beast's neck with the force and just nonchalantly asks something along the lines of, hey, it looks like you guys could use a tour guide out of here, I need to ride off this rock, we're all very attached to the power, I think everything is lining between us today. Because <laughs> he's such an asshole. Uh, <laughs> back in the cavern, with the, with the buzz of the fight gone, Hyro and Chen look like they're going to be back to biting each other's head off again. Still, Megumi shouts some sense to them, like, hey, this isn't over, something worse is coming. He and Varna sensed a great disturbance when they were in contact with Kaldorf, when they got to peek more into his fractured mind. The core presence is gone along with his body, 
but centuries embooded within that ooze has imprinted its essence, his dark side of force, into it, turning it unstable, far more dangerous than a union of guards and the aristocrat family can understand, and now that they're taking it into the highly populated heart of the inner rim, uh, possibly into the Republic, you know, the Senate itself, that's like bringing a nuclear bomb into a peace uh, meeting, you know. One unfiltered mm. spark of energy is all that's needed to trigger capitalism. It's like hydrogen bomb amped up by the swarm midichlorians inside, tinged by the dark side. Not only would the physical harm the explosion would do be intense, it could hypothetically act as a kind of EMP to the force itself, warping the cosmic force in a, a large chunk of the galaxy, diminishing the light side of the force and amping up the powers of the dark side. And you know, Megumi's trying to beg everyone to, hey, I know we all have a different sides here but we, we've seen we've seen the ooze we all know we spanked for one thing and now we, we have a greater duty to the universe to stop this before it upsets the balance uh inside varna's head zeldin is just like let's just get out of here your mission is complete uh let's just leave these force wielding idiots to this and just return back to our home world but varna's like well our home is part of this galaxy and if they are right if magic and the force are one and the same we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose the chance. We have to help these guys. So, uh, her new roommate is pretty pissed off about this idea. But this marks a big shift in Varna's journey. Chen is on board immediately. While he is doubted by his role as a Jedi, he owes them loyalty. So many of the people he grew up with are on Coruscant, and his passion to the Force remain, itself remains. Plus, he wants to avenge his master. As you do in your typical, oh, my master's been killed by Sith Lord, I'm going to ignore all, all the training <laughs> about not holding attachments. Uh, Hayo has doubts about the efficiency of this new bizarre company. He has a score to settle with his former master, and he sees this group as the best way to achieve goals. For once, he will be the one using others to serve his goals. And so with that, a new fellowship of dysfunctional force wielders are formed. The rest of the convoy up in orbit around the planet have kind of abandoned it after the guards return. They're like, oh, well, there's nothing down there. We'll just skedaddle. All that's left are the pirates that attacked them earlier. They contact the pirates and they're like, Megumi tries to beg them to help them, to get them to understand the important situation till Hayo just steps in like, hey, I managed to destroy you guys single-handedly. Imagine what four force wielders can do to you guys. And the captain pirate who is just like, He's just tired of his crew complaining all the time, and he just thinks these new guys are funny. He kicks out his old gang after cruising with the escape pods, and he's like, hey, welcome aboard. If we save the Republic, maybe I'll get a reward. Together, they set course. Their target already a good head start ahead of them in their, in their much smaller, much faster ship. Elder is glued to the side of the tank. He's absorbing as, as much strength for the Force as he can from it to keep his broken heart beating. All the while, head guard Raynor, he's plotting his own plan of the ooze. He's figuring he can use it as a way to break the force itself. The level of battleground that is the galaxy for non-force wielders like himself. Back on his new ship, Hyro is melding the two broken lightsaber of Alda and Hyro into his own. The chain holding his whole life is finally gone as he ponders where he'll take his own destiny now. And that is part one done. Sign in next time for part two in limited screening near cinema near you. Uh, any, any questions for... Jump more into characters and possible and story details. Um, the only question I have is, did you happen to play uh, Nasty Little Republic 2? Because this, like, EMP for the Force, if that's a major plot point in there called a, a wound in the Force. So I was wondering if you were taking that concept, uh, if you knew anything about that. 
I had not actually, no. I'm very, as I discussed with you recently, I'm not quite familiar with Old Republic, so <laughs> once again, I'm bringing up an idea that has already been done. Oh, no, no. You, you did it very differently than the way they've done it. Yeah, I hope so. A wound in the Force is a, is a concept uh, from the old expanding universe, and you've set it up quite nicely um so you you called it a 4cmp but uh i just wanted to say that the 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 actual terminology in universe at least in the old canon was wound in the force cool that was all uh this is exciting stuff uh for fan cast ideas uh i'm gonna tackle every character just the three main ones that popped into my head the most whenever i think about these guys uh steven yun as chen uh, he is a very proficient voice actor. He's been in shows like Invincible, Final Space. Uh, I feel like he would give the role a lot of energy and charisma, I feel. It needs to balance against Hyro's more somber personality. For Jedi Master of Avar Pilger, I want someone with a really distinct voice that's both commanding and warm. A presence you remember despite his premature death. A presence I think the former and criminally underrated Bond actor has, uh, Timothy Dalton. Areva is basically the Gwygon of this series, and Gwygon is memorable thanks to Liam Neeson, so I wanted to bring in that kind of that same kind of presence, and I feel like Timothy Dalton uh, would have that in spades. Uh, and for Alda, Sam Neill of Jurassic World fame and uh, Event Horizon, I feel like he can add some real suave menace to the role. You know, it's 2023, let's have an Australian Sith on board. But those are just suggestions of uh, <laughs> like who I picture in my head, just to bring some big names to this hypothetical project. Uh, so a little backstory on ideas I had for the, sh the story, why I went in the direction I went in. This basically ties into what you were saying earlier, about how the Sith aren't basically, aren't living up to their full potential on the bigger mainstream stories. You know, they're massive iconic villains of pop culture, uh, and I feel like the movie's only just scratching the surface with them. This project basically started out as my take on The Acolyte, an upcoming Disney Plus show that will be focusing more on the Sith side. Uh, it was something I'm really looking forward to, but at the same time, I'm kind of wary about the actual payoff. I feel like the recent Disney Plus live action shows have an issue where they kind of fall into the same trap uh, presentation wise. I feel like they keep doing the same story over and over. I have a sneaking suspicion about the Acolyte that it will fall in the same trap as the other Disney Plus shows. That will go too far and rush and redeem a titular apprentice. That will get a show once again where the main character goes on a journey where they learn about helping others. As you know, those are very common trends now. Uh, to me, that will be redundant to do that story for a Sith-led story. For this project, my aim was, in a way, to flip it. This isn't a story about Hyro learning to care for others and becoming a hero. Not necessarily. This is a story about Hyro gaining the inner strength to take control of his life of him looking back at his upbringing with his master, uh, his dark father, the Sith ideals he was taught, and realising, hey, this isn't what this brief is about. My master has been twisting it to best suit himself. The Sith ideal is to become your own best person. You know, I renounce your teachings, but I will hold on to the Sith order. I'm going to reconnect it with it my way and live out its true meaning. So in a way, this will be my kind of more twisted take on a found family trope. You know, these four guys in you know, part two, they'll they'll go close together, but it's like if Luke was a ticking time bomb, you know, Hyo can just kind of snap at any moment, and that's something all the other characters are very walking around eggshells on. Like, he's our best bet at stopping Alda, but at what cost could it lead to? Uh, and like I said earlier, part two would follow. They're on the same ship, they're on a massive chase, they're, they're bonding together, they're having arguments about what the Force means to them. I hope that will bring something new to this series, because I feel like we haven't had that much 
delivered on as as its potential with Ving. Mm. Uh, so Raynor, I make him the big bad of part two, basically. Aldar is just an idiot who thinks he's the big bad. He's really not. With Raynor, I think you have the interesting potential of just taking a normal person with... Uh, he has a sense of duty, of right and wrong. He thinks he's doing right. He just has a deep hatred for the Force because he's looking back at what the history of the two religions has caused across the universe. So he's very anti-Force and I feel like that would be an interesting thing to bring to the series. Uh, you know, he's not like, he's not trying to create an empire. I feel like that's where the sequel trilogy went wrong and that they, and that the First Order is basically just a copy and paste of the original empire. This guy isn't trying to take over the universe, he just wants to level the playing field for everyone. He, he sees himself as a provider of equality. You know, if he can use mm -hmm. the Force, if he can use this power to break or forever remove the Force, he thinks he'll be doing the universe a good service. So that'll bring a moral discussion into the final act of part two of is he in the right? Should the Force exist in this world? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I was just going to say, Raynor and the Yuzin Vong from the old canon would have an interesting conversation. I don't want to bag on a sequel trilogy too much. I feel like everyone else does that. I don't despise it as much as everyone else does. But I do think it has flaws, and I think the biggest one is the First Order. I feel like the new villain sh should have been someone, like what you just said, who's not against the rebels or against the Jedi, just against the Force itself. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping I can bring that idea into here, and that can lead to something bigger, possibly even beyond part two, and a hypothetical, you know, sequel to this part two-parter. Having not watched Visions, I don't know the, the animation studios that you referenced, um, but, like, how heightened would it be? Like, would it be... Um, you know, a very anime-type thing, or would it be... It's anime, but it, it it's it's less exaggerated. Somewhere in between, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Some anime shows will go, i say, very heightened, very cartoony. If a character gets angry, they'll, you know, they'll turn red, they'll turn into chibi versions of themselves. Uh, I'll avoid that, personally. Uh, I think the beauty mm -hmm. of animation is that you can heighten scenes, but I wouldn't want to go too far in that cartoony direction. It would still be fairly grounded. And I feel like mm -hmm. The Ninth Jedi was a good example of that. You know, the action scenes felt very fluid. Uh, you can do great character designs with them. The point of this series, especially with Hyro, is I feel like, you know, we've got too many handsome-looking human main characters. <laughs> with Hyro uh, and, to an extent, Megumi and Vana, you've got more alien-looking main characters. Uh, mm -hmm. I went with the Norton for Hyro because I, I like Kit Fisto a lot from, from Star Wars. Yes. Mainly the 2000 feature where he just has that one short episode, but he just has this super cool underwater fight. So my idea with Hyro is, what if Kit Fisto just grew up in a really bad environment? Uh, and he's questioning mm -hmm. his connection to everything. I, I do say I really like the uh, Hyro's backstory with the uh, this guy who takes in Force-sensitive orphans and basically does survival of the fittest on like a small scale both conjures um the abuse that can happen in foster homes and if the parent isn't necessarily a good person but also uh shows the the way in which the force as an entity because uh in the old universe anyway I'm not sure if it's still that in the old universe the force was a living entity that strived for balance and would manipulate people so that it could have its semblance of balance. It strived for something that cannot exist cosmically. And so it tore people's lives apart. 
just to seek something that it cannot find. Th- that that really conjures that of that this this guy would have just been an ordinary guy, but he got twisted in this kind of thinking and then led this like orphan survival of the fittest gang. And that's all kinds of messed up. And that, I think that's a that has a lot to mine there. I think that was really a good idea. Thank you. O- only thing that I'm not certain on is uh, the the way in which um, Vana sort of enters the group. It, this is synopsis, obviously, so I'm not getting to experience that art. Um, but there there feels to be a disconnect from how distant she was to suddenly becoming a big part of the the fellowship with everyone else you can get sort of a sense of where they're coming from uh, especially at the end where hero and chin bond over the fact that they've just lost effectively their parent um megumi you know she she's the wild card but she's uh but she already had an attachment to hero by being the only one that really accepted him um and then vana seems to be the odd one out and uh, obviously this being a synopsis, I can't go through that journey with her, uh, but I, I, I'm interested to, to, to see how you would tackle that. That's fair. Like I said, this group is quite dysfunctional. I feel like having her with the odd one out would kind of work in that sense. Because she's still selfish. She's just, Zeldin is the one who's like, let the rest of you let us hang. Daphomir will be fine. Varna is like, well, Daphomir is part of the galaxy. Uh, so she's still very loyal to home world. She just sees this as a, a means to end to help her world and her new mental mm-hmm. roommate will have a lot of arguments about that in the hypothetical part two but yeah she's still mm-hmm. she's not like buddy buddies with the rest of the characters uh she might reach that point in part two but even then she will she'll still be frosty mm-hmm. night sisters are very frosty characters uh merin in the recent jedi order fallen order video game uh he's a good example of how that type of character can grow over time to connect with others like I said, it's like a ticking time bomb. Hyro or Vana could just explode any moment. Mm-hmm. But no, other than that, I think this is a very solid premise. Um, it, it would work very well for the animation, uh, especially when they get to the, 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 the Fountain of Youth type thing and the way you were describing it of like this uh, 70s lava lamp. Having had one of those, I think that would be really cool to see in sort of like a heightened animated form on a planet. Um, it brings to mind, uh, there's a video game. The first expansion to World of Warcraft, uh, you went to this shattered realm, this other dimension that didn't, that, that, that was sort of shattered by, uh, dark magic and, uh, and all sorts of crazy stuff. And one of the fun things you can do once you get high enough levels, you can get a flying mount and you can fly to all these different floating islands. There's nothing really on it. Occasionally you'll find like an herb or something. Uh, nothing special, but it was just the, 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 the visuals of it, I know, really struck me when I was a kid playing that. So I think that would work very well in animation. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a very solid, I hate to say rags the riches, because it's not quite that, but, you know, like, fantasy, uh, you know, group comes together and solves the problem and there's going to be a lot of great character dynamics there's uh there's a core central thesis i think is really good here uh this is all solid work thank you the way i refer to it in my head is like uh, a dnd type adventure uh, in the first draft i did for this it would just be mainly hyra with chenda uh megumi was mm. human she had a different name i told myself i would include the night sisters but then i just forgot to <laughs> and i felt like mm, this draft <laughs> isn't working i need to 
shake it up. So I made it uh, more of a group story, and I feel like it flows much better that way. I'm, I'm having more fun picturing my head, and I hope that it's more fun for you guys to picture in your heads. Because that's the beauty of Star Wars, mm. you've got all these different species and planets and ideologies, so when you mash them together, you can create magic out of that. And going back to what you're saying about the mm. planet, uh, my number one rule for Star Wars is no more sand planets. I am sick to <laughs> death of sand planets. No more. So uh, I want you know, I want exciting planets in Star Wars. You know, it's a galaxy, you can have so many possibilities. And that's why I wanted to thing in this pitch with the, you know, the messed up origin moon that may or not, may or not be a cast aside remnant of this myth, mythical force planet. But no, the Star Wars shows just keep insisting on sand planets that look identical to Tatooine. And no, what, what, there's nothing exciting about that. You know what's really sad is the first High Republic book I read had like a clay planet. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so cool. And like that idea just sounds so neat compared to just a boring ass sand planet. Yeah. Sure, it's easier to film in the desert, I guess. But, you know, you've got the money, Disney. You've got the green screen tech got the you know even better use practical effects give us something new mm -hmm. i i do want to say i i think it was inspired to bring like an obscure character uh from recent uh you know canon in a book and make him a big bad you know the the, the antithesis for the the, the 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 story going forward having not read any of the new stuff i didn't really know who this guy was and you intrigued me to look him up and perhaps get the book he's in. Because uh, uh, that's a very cool concept. And uh, also the, the cosmic horror vibe you gave with him. With, like his consciousness is still in the ooze. And uh, the, the, the way in which his body has... Um, again, something from Nazi Republic 2 that you have uh, inadvertently taken that I think is really cool. In the Knights of the Old Republic series, there is a uh, there's a character called Darth Sion, who's unkillable. You can't kill him. His will, his anger, keeps him alive. So he's like this cragged, broken man, barely looks human anymore. Um, and uh, but he can't die because his anger keeps him going. Uh, and that the Kaldoth, the way you describe that, really conjures that in my head. And along with the wood in the forest. You're pulling from things inadvertently that I really love. So that's got me excited. Yeah, I wanted to have like one established character to play around for my original ones. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, do mm. any one too big. So when I found out about Kaldorf, I was like, oh, this is a perfect fit. You, you know, most people won't know him, but to that one person who read the anthology book he's in, I hope you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you for those lovely words. Uh, I am done. Part two may be visited in the future. We'll discuss about that in towards the end. So yeah, on to your pitch. You've told me a little bit about it. I'm very excited to see where it goes. So, after you. Alright, so I have a bit of a preamble to this because I've been in a funk with Star Wars for a bit. Two episodes ago uh, in the season, I pitched a fix for Book of Boba Fett. And while in recording terms, that's been a while... Uh, for our listeners, it's only been a few weeks. Uh, but that show put me in sort of a funk with Star Wars. I was disappointed by it. And everything that I kept seeing from uh, promotions for other things, up upcoming announcements, nothing was getting me excited. And so I just want to take you on a brief 
uh, preamble journey of my experience with Star Wars, how I feel about it, and how that extrapolates into my pitch. So Star Wars is a franchise so large and so popular that what I want to do with it is probably entirely different from others. And this is a franchise that had spinoffs and um, uh, and tie-in media mere months after it appeared. Marvel started uh, publishing Star Wars comics in 1978, only a few months after its debut in 1977 in theaters. I'm a kid born to a man who loves the original trilogy, and I just don't share his love of it. And my parents introduced me to Star Wars when I was two. Uh, and when I was in love with this franchise, I was deeply in love. I consumed the comics, the games, the books, over and over. It's all I would read. I was consuming the expanded universe at such a fast rate, uh, but there was an infinite supply of it at the time, and it seemed like an endless treasure chest. And then... That love soured over time, I moved on, and then Disney acquired the rights, got rid of the Expanded Universe. That left me in dour straits, because all of what I love is from the Expanded Universe. Uh, the movies come secondary to me, and because of that, I've been less enthused with what they've been doing. And I, I talked about with Book of Fett, this was targeted towards me, and then it disappointed me. I'm not a big fan of the original trilogy. I don't think the prequel trilogy is about as people think it is, and I've never seen the sequel trilogy. The the shows and singular movies, some have interested me, some absolutely not, some I despised to the point that I had to take a break from the franchise. So, you know, with that all in mind, Star Wars to most people, average person on the street, it's Luke, Leia, Han, Chewie. Or perhaps, in a more grand sense, it's Force Powers and Lightsabers. Star Wars to me is Darth Bane, Revan, Ulic Queldromo, Dash Rindar, and Darth Talon. Have you heard of any of these people? Of course not, because they're all from the Expanded Universe. So, Star Wars is an infinite playground that you can do anything with. Uh, and so, my idea, my, my hope with this pitch is to pitch a tone and a feel and an idea and a corner of the universe that would reignite my excitement for this franchise. As such, my pitch is not as serialized as my previous pitches have been, nor is it as focused as yours uh, that we just went through. It is uh, much more scatterbrained. I'm going to be introducing the characters. I'm going to be introducing the setting, the tone, um, and uh, just the general structure, and then a handful of sorting ideas. This is all about tone, this is all about feel, and the intention is, this is how I want Star Wars to feel. This is what would reignite my passion. This isn't necessarily the, you know, the be-all, end-all, and if I was handed the franchise at a different point in my life, maybe I would do something entirely different. But right now, because my passion for the franchise has dwindled and decayed, this is something that I think could really reignite my love of what used to be one of my favorite franchises of all time. And so I'm going to pitch a comic book series named Star Wars Smuggler's Moon. The The reason it's a, it's a comic is because comics can get away with a lot of niche stuff you can't get away with in television or movies with such a big franchise. For instance, Dr. Aphra a character introduced in the, the, the current Marvel line of Star Wars books 
uh, has gotten her own spinoff, and she started out as a minor character in an entirely different, unrelated book, and proved so popular she got her own series. She's a character that is entirely created in the comics, has only appeared in the comics, is not from anywhere else, and most people who don't read comics have any idea who she is. But she's got her own series. And so, to me, that is not only my own love of the medium of comics, but I think that the the its ability to do niche stuff would give me more freedom. And part of that is that it's an infinitely malleable medium, and because this this pitch is entirely on tone and feel, I'm not saying I'm going to be the sole writer, and when I get to the artists, I'm not going to say that they're going to be the only artist, because this can be something that can be changed and and formed into something else. So with all that preamble out of the way, I give you Star Wars Smuggler's Moon. The setting is Nar Shaddaa. It is the moon of the uh, of, of the hut planet, now Hada. I love the criminal underworld of Star Wars, and sadly, uh, we seem to not be interested in exploring that anymore. The old expanded universe used to explore it a lot, and Mandalorian, which I thought was going to be that, quickly devolved into Jedi shit. And Book of Boba Fett was barely interested in exploring the ideas of criminal empires. So my intention is to get rid of all that noise and focus on criminal underworld on a moon ruled by them. Just zero in on that aspect of Star Wars. What's interesting about Narshada to me is it's one of the earliest planets introduced in the Expanded Universe. It first appeared, I believe, in one of Marvel's uh, comics from 1978 or 79. So like it's early, early expanded universe, but has continued to show up and has been expanded upon. And long before Coruscant was even a thing, it was a moon that is like an entire city. You know, it's a, it's a metropolis. It, 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 the city spans the entire uh, moon. And in contrast to Coruscant when it was introduced, which is like this elegant political, you know, superpower, basically, Narshada is this grimy, dirty, dingy place of sin and vice. To put it in simple American terms, it's Space Las Vegas. This is what I want to explore. Is uh this is the this is the core feel uh that I'm going for is Odd Narchada, uh and thus the comic smuggler's moon, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, crime is a matter of survival, and all hope is lost. Because of the nature of Narshada, uh Star Wars being a mishmash of Flash Gordon and Samurai fiction my idea is, what if Star Wars was a mishmash of crime noir and cyberpunk? What if Star Wars was Black Lagoon meets Blade Runner? And so you get the contrast with the, the mainline part of the franchise. It has these dashing heroic knights in shiny armor, but with laser swords. Uh, you get conflict and drama. Uh, you get a more mature-oriented audience, and the variety is key to a big franchise. And you get interesting themes to explore, such as organized crime and how it affects everyday life, both mundane and political, and what it means to grow up in a world that sees you purely as an asset, something to be used rather than something worthy of living. So with the whole moon as uh, the main character's oyster, I want to focus on the dichotomy of Narshada. Shanty towns give way to casinos, which give way to skyscraper apartments, which give way to massive corporate sites. You know, some characters will come from different levels of, of the moon. Some might not even be from Narshada in the first place. The moon means something different to each of them. But they have all one thing in common with Narshada. Crime does 
Hey, the setting, and by extension our characters, are not good people. They are horrible, horrible people. They are criminals, they're murderers, perhaps even worse. This is to contrast the very clean, very good versus evil of the, the, the movies. In this kind of world, that just doesn't work. A good example of what I'm going for is in real life, in the 1700s, uh, a group of pirates took over an island in the Caribbean and took over a city called Nassau and set up a Republic of Pirates. It was a, it was a literal government formed on the backbone of criminality. Uh, and the British Empire had to put a stop to that. It took them several decades to do that. For a time, Caribbean was literally run by pirates who had set up their own government. And an, a more fictional, more recent example would be the anime manga... Black Lagoon, which I mentioned before, uh, in which our characters of criminals live in a city that strives on criminality, but they also hate it at the same time because they feel they're trapped in this life. Each level of Narshida has uh, several threats, both physical and political. You have the street gangs, you have the law enforcement officers, which are just hot thugs. You have corrupt corporations fighting wars of attrition with each other uh, and exploiting the locals. And then, of course, you have... Uh, you know, the, the less insidious evils, such as gambling dens and brothels. The general idea is to have a select bunch of these factions bump into each other, the great drama in which our characters interact with, and perhaps even introduce minor characters that could become major enemies or main characters later on. Outside of the titular moon that this is being set on, I needed to find a time frame to set this in. And as I thought about it, I wanted to get as far away from any current movie or show, anything, uh, in the current canon. Because I am an expanded universe buff, I went to the Old Republic era. Uh, because the new canon is primarily obsessed with original trilogy stuff and occasional excursions to prequel trilogy, or in uh, in certain cases, like the big High Republic thing, only 100 years or so before Phantom Menace, I wanted to go further. I wanted to go back to the old Tales of the Jedi comics. I wanted to go back to Knights of the Old Republic uh, games. I wanted to, you know, to go back to the stuff I loved. And because that's not canon anymore, uh, I have relatively a free blank slate, but with tons of, of expanded use of material that I can repurpose if I need to. Just to give an example, the Mandalorian Wars were mentioned in The Mandalorian. So the Mandalorian Wars are canon to the new Disney canon, but there's no information on it outside of Mandalore the Ultimate fought the Jedi. There's tons and tons of information in the old expanding universe about the Mandalorian Wars, which is a conflict that lasted 16 years and had massive ramifications on the Republic and the Jedi uh, and the galaxy at large for years and years and years to come. Uh, and so uh, I want to borrow some of those ideas along with combining it with my own ideas. In the admittedly annoying dating system of Star Wars, this is going to be set in 3962 BBY, which means before Battle of Yavin. This is two years after the end of the Mandalorian Wars, which ended in uh, 3964. No major characters from the Old Republic era will feature at all outside of a, a few mentions. As that stuff is no longer canon, but I wish to honor it, in my head all this stuff has or will come to pass 
until it is contradicted by someone. So that means that, yes, Revan did defy the Jedi Head Council and join the war and rally a bunch of Jedi to take up arms to help the Republic uh, and, and defeat the Mandalorians, leading to the fall of the Dark Side and the, the, the famed destruction of the planet Malachor V when Revan set off a superweapon. And causing a wound in the Force. None of that will be directly shown. This is not Knights of the Old Republic. This is not Tales of the Jedi. This is Smuggler's Moon. This is a story set around that time, around those events, and focuses on things entirely different, but those things affect going forward. You know, this is a galaxy in the aftermath of war. Mandalorian Wars, you know, almost a two-decade-long conflict uh you know the galaxy is licking its wounds healing uh but is very much on edge jedi and mandalorians are seen as scum the the sith have been noticeably absent soldiers be have begun to turn to crime uh for better income uh you know uh new policies introduced during the war are now trying the patience of planets populaces and so there there's a lot of protests and, and stuff going on and riots and underneath all of this as with every war hatred and bigotry festers under it all and starts to bubble to the surface with the setting and the in the, the time frame set i want to get into the tone and the art so the tone i want to go for is like a gritty crime drama but i don't want to push star wars in a way that it can't go or shouldn't go uh, the thing about Star Wars is it, it's a family-oriented franchise. And while I do believe there is room for an R-rated Star Wars project, George Lucas would be apprehensive towards it. He famously uh, thought one of the games released, uh, Dark Forces, was uh, too violent. Uh, and Disney would never, you know, never go to that length because uh, they just... Their family-oriented, uh, you know, company. So because of that, I want to go to a hard PG-13 rating. And to put in that in comics terms, I would liken it to Daredevil by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Malev, or, or something more popular, uh, Batman Year One by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli. These are dark, very grim stories set in franchises that are aimed at a general family audience. So the general rule is swears will either be in-universe slang, i.e. dank ferric, or censored by symbols. Nudity must be tastefully obscured. Violence can be brutal, bloody, and gory, but never in a way that seems gratuitous. As I said, this is a compromise because of the nature of Star Wars. But I do know that this kind of tone can work and work very well. With that tone in mind, I want an art style that conveys this. I want something in a single panel that makes you feel dirty just looking at it. You can feel the dirt and the grime coming off the page. And because of this, I have two very particular artists in mind. They are big shots. There is no way in hell they would ever work for me. But this is hypothetical, and considering Disney owns the, the rights to Star Wars, that means that Marvel's going to be publishing it. So the likelihood that I would be working in a big two company is outrageous to begin with. So... Let's just roll with it. I would like Axe Malev, the aforementioned one. He's a freaking collaborator, Bendis, and whose work I love. Uh, you know, listeners, please seek out uh, Scarlet. Fantastic independent uh, series by him and Bendis. And Daredevil, their run is superb. Uh, the other is Michael Lark, a flanking collaborator of Greg Rucka and Edward Baker. For examples, see the Lazarus uh, series from Image Comics, Gotham Central, or Edward Baker and Michael Lark's run on Daredevil.
the, these are two artists known for heavy black inks, detailed faces that convey tons of emotion, and clever panel layout that convey the emotions of the story just as much as it displays it, and grimy and dirty backgrounds. My intention is that if Star Wars is a love letter to uh, adventure serials of high-flying action, then Smuggler's Moon is a love letter to the pulps and the crime magazines that were popular at the same time in which George was going and seeing these high-flying serials. This is the idea, along with the aforementioned coda, the rich get richer, poor get poorer, is if Star Wars is science fantasy about the brave knight who saves the princess from the evil wizard, Smuggler's Moon is a cyberpunk crime noir about the criminals that live in a world where a simple farm boy from Tatooine does not become the savior of all, but instead gets put six feet under for daring the dream of a better life. Any questions so far? I 100% agree with your pre-ramble thesis. Uh, I've suffered my own Star Wars fatigue for a while. You know, as a kid, Star Wars was this mythical thing that my brother could watch, but I couldn't because I was too young at the time. But I keep hearing about it, I keep seeing snippets of it, and it just fascinates me. And it felt like, you know, a milestone where I could finally watch the original trilogy. Uh, and I just fell in love with the atmosphere of it. And it was only years later till I realised there's a prequel trilogy. You know, when I first discovered it by accident on television, saw a later half of Attack of the Clone, I got confused. I thought, I thought it was like a brand new sequel. And I was like, why is Obi-Wan back alive? Why is he trying to kill them? Because I just, me being an idiot kid, thought... Old people with white hair were the same. I got Count Dooku <laughs> and Obi-Wan mixed up. But yeah, Star Wars, it's a phenomenon for a reason. Uh, and, you know, I, I, try, I try to keep up with all the shows and all that. Uh, yeah, I suffered massive fatigue for a while. Uh, if you caught me a few years ago, I would have really complained about it, uh, about the tr sequel trilogy and all that. Uh, Mandalorian, Boba Fett, you know, I feel like they're very safe. They're too safe. It's what you're going into there. That's Disney at its most mainstream, comforting trendsetter. And, you know, everyone seemed to love it. Everyone's been praising Mandalorian, or as it should really be called, uh, Baby Yoda guest starring the Mandalorian. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't hitting me the same way. I had fun with it. Uh, it was only last year, really, with High Republic and Andor that I start to really get interested in Star Wars again. Uh, Andor, I feel, is very in line with what you have been talking about. It takes a much more mature approach to thing. Uh, it's it's not a fantasy. It's a it's a gritty, desperate story about a man in a situation where he can't possibly win to overthrow the Empire. Uh, you know, we know his story. He's going to die in Rogue One, so this is just doing the best he can to be scrappy to fight against them. You really get a sense of how suffocating and truly disgusting the Empire is, while at the same time just showing to be a boring bureaucracy that has too much power. So yeah, High Republic and Andor show, they're both very different in tones, but they made me fall in love with Star Wars again, they made me see it with fresh eyes. Uh, it's what you're saying, you have to... Star Wars in a unique position where it's this massive sandbox, Shows and movies are only showing this one corner of it that we all know when so much more exciting stuff exists with all the niche stuff in the, in the past. Or if you want to try something new, the possible future. One of the characters I listed, Dark Talon, she's from the, the Legacy comics. That's John Ostrander, famous comic book guy. And uh, just doing what he wants to do with Star Wars. And uh, I, I miss that kind of experimentation. Now everything's original trilogy. Everything is focused on Empire and Rebels. And I'm just so bored. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you were saying earlier about the connections, you know, the original trilogy and being a tribute to 
base cereals uh, and your smug and a moon being a tribute to pulp uh, with a nice little cyberpunk twist. I think that's very smart reasoning. I suspect you would go in that direction and you have not disappointed me. And yeah, I, you picked very great examples in terms of the artists you would use. Uh, now Hutter and it's, you know, space, Las Vegas moon are settings I've always wanted to see more of. Yeah, this is shaping up to be quite a little treat. Uh, my question before we go on is, is this like an anthology series where each issue is a different aspect, a different character is a, let's say, rack, because, you know, on a planet like that, betrayal is a, essentially promotion, it's a way of life. Would it be an anthology series or follow just specific character or group it's going to follow a specific group i have a general structure section so i'll get to that in a bit but i have a core group of characters and a core group of uh returning characters reoccurring characters and the idea is just to experience this life through them that that's where we get the experience of narshadab but feel a bit safer as we don't swap out characters i've struggled with anthologies in the past because I'm very character-oriented and I get attached to characters, and if a character disappears, that, that really annoys me. And I can adjust after a while. My own personal taste, I would much prefer just to follow a core cast. It has an anthology feel in some of the storylines I'll get into, and as I said, I don't have a whole lot of uh, strict structure. And so there'll be, like, you know, a random issue about uh, a randomly occurring character rather than any of our major characters, for instance. Stuff like that. But we are going to have a core cast. How many issues or volumes would you envision for this? Uh, see, that's the thing. I was, uh, in the structure, I put, it's an ongoing with no end in sight. I basically want to do it until they tell me not to. Okay, so very Walking Dead kind of... Yes. Um, this is not something that you can get away with at a big two company on a major franchise. However, I would love to be able to do it. And because it's a hypothetical, I just went ahead and went with it and said, you know, this can be chopped down to like a 12-issue series or something. But like this is my vision of something like uh, the way we used to have comics. We don't really have it anymore. We mainly do a lot of mini-series of just long, ongoing series that just don't really end, but when they do end, it feels final. So something like The Spectre by John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake, which went on for 60-something issues, and it, it moves through various storylines and developed our arcs, and at the end, it felt like a final end. And it was wonderful. Uh, and that's the sort of journey that comics used to have, where it was this long story, but it did end, and you felt complete. And now, either it's a miniseries, or it's a character that never ends, but their creative team keeps swapping. So the, the writers have to uh, condense their stories. I know famously, Tom King didn't even get to finish his Batman run. Uh, he was removed from the book only two-thirds of the way through. And so his rod remains unfinished, just sort of half there. And so th this is, because it's a hypothetical, I'm going to treat it like comics used to be, I think is, is my general idea. Yeah, very sound approach, totally agree. That's what comics should have remained. You know, death should have had meaning. Uh, the 90s, you know, the Superman fiasco <laughs> sadly ruined that. Modern comics have been sticking to it ever since. Yeah, let's bring it back to proper old school. Stories matter. Every story should have a twilight. Uh, oh yeah, you, you set this, you set a great picture. Uh, let's get to the nitty gritty.
Okay, so our major core cast characters. So our core cast is a small group, a small criminal gang uh, that do odd jobs on Nar They are not special and have no grand reputation. Uh, they, they are just one of many mercenary-style gangs in or around Smuggler's Moon, uh, the eponymous Nar In the old expanded universe, it did have the name of Smuggler's Moon, which is why I use that as the title. They are semi-well-connected due to some personal connections. It's not significant enough for them to get special treatment. And we will follow them as they, uh, you know, do odd jobs, uh, gain a reputation, and perhaps even get involved in major events. So our core four main characters uh, are as follows. Lanaya is our first one. This is a name you'll probably see pop up on this podcast a lot. It's one of my favorite names to stick to a character. I don't know why. Just like the sound of it. She is going to be our main POV character. Um, while this is an ensemble, uh, she is the main endpoint for the for the readers. Um, and uh, she is a Chani. The Chani are a species introduced in the Knights of the Old Republic games. They were a group of matriarchal uh, martial artists, basically. They are a warrior culture, and they are they're human-looking, but they have distinctly paler skin and very light-colored hair. Um, and uh, they, they specialize in, in in combat. They're sort of like the, the antithesis to Mandalorians, where Mandalorians are very gruff, men-oriented warrior culture. The Ichani are the reverse, the female-oriented warrior culture. The Amazons. I was just about to say. <laughs> yeah. If Mandalore is Sparta, then the Achani are the Amazons. And so uh, Lanaya, in the course of this story, is 24 years old. She has purple eyes, light white hair, uh, and is pretty damn tall. I just simply described as Amazonian in height. So anywhere between six foot or more. She uh, was the black sheep of her family. Not uh, amounting to much of anything. Uh, she she lacked the political power her sister gained. She lacked the technical genius of her brother. And her dad's uh, business ventures. Uh, she was never really interested in that either. So abuse was thrown her way, especially early in her youth, when she struggled to understand basic Achani martial arts. And uh, basically she was, we, she was given an ultimatum when she turned 18. Uh, you know, prove your worth or be exiled. Your choice. So, as this long, ongoing war uh, had been going on for over ten years, called the Mandalorian Wars, between uh, the newly reinvigorated Mandalorian Empire, uh, led by Mandalore the Ultimate and his Neo-Crusaders, uh, versus the Republic, with the Jedi abstaining, she joined a paramilitary organization to be hired out as a mercenary to the Republic. Uh, and fought in the Mandalorian Wars in its final few years. Because Mandalorians are rivals to the Achani, they are both warrior cultures with different viewpoints, and this is an ongoing war, she thought this would be the best way to prove herself. And after several battles, she, she proved quick on her feet, quite intelligent, and very brave, which means that she moved through the ranks of her uh, you know, mercenary squad quite quickly. She became second in command only after two years of service. But... Uh, pride goeth before the fall, and uh, she, as she had proved herself, she got complacent. 
So during one skirmish, uh, her squad was pinned. The, the squad leader had been hit by a grenade, was severely injured, unconscious, bleeding out. And the Mandalorian enemy squad leader challenged the leader of the opposing squad to a one-on-one duel. And she was the de facto leader, and she's a Chani, and a warrior culture. She accepted, and she lost. Badly. She held her own against a Mandalorian for five minutes, which is quite a feat, but uh, was a failure. She lost an eye in this exchange, and when she woke up after recovery, she had been uh, you know, removed from her family. She lost her name. She is now Lanaya, no last name whatsoever. And uh, because of this, she lost her, her family fortune, which means she didn't have money to pay to get a replacement for her eye. So she turned to crime to pay for her cybernetic eye. Uh, and so this proud Achani that had failed and failed until finally she succeeded, failed again. Uh, and this led her to moving from place to place to escape debt until she was taken in by our core group's leader, Sintal Kral. And now getting into Sintal Kral. Sintal Kral is a 103-year-old Sith pureblood. Uh, the red-skinned race whose religion and name became synonymous with the followers of the Dark Side of the Force. They are the natural inhabitants of the planet of Korriban, and uh, basically his family were nomadic refugees uh, for centuries after the end of the Great Hyperspace War. So the Great Hyperspace War was this uh, big point where the Republic, that was a growing uh, paradise basically, stumbled upon Korriban. And the natural Sith inhabitants were a bit uh, averse to them, they don't like outsiders. And this sort of manipulative asshole named Naga Sadao, very strong in the force, uh, basically took over and became the de facto ruler and declared a war against the Republic. It didn't go well, but because the Sith Purebloods are naturally attuned to the force, the Jedi feared them, and the, the fact that they amassed an army so quickly humiliated the Republic. So the Supreme Chancellor ordered the Sith to be wiped out completely. So in the aftermath of the Great Hyperspace War, Jedi and Republic soldiers marched on the Sith side of the galaxy and exterminated every last living Sith they could find. They committed genocide. Once again, Jedi are not good people. There's been a handful of refugees, some have scattered about the galaxy. Quite famously in the Old Republic timeline, there's a, there's a small group that, uh, that went to the Outer Rim to unexplored space and settled upon Droman Kos, where they built up the new empire over a millennia to return much, much later. Sintokol is a descendant of one of these refugees who just went about the galaxy. Uh, and he was born on Narshada, and he is naturally Force-sensitive, but he hates the idea of the Force. He hates the Republic, he hates the Jedi for what they did, uh, but also the stories he was told as a kid proved that his people were too rigid, blindly followed. And so he forsakes the Force, he forsakes the teaching of his people, and he wishes to live a life outside of that. He is the last of his family line. His family died out long ago, one from an illness, another from a lynch mob. Uh, you know, he has no siblings, uh, and he has no children, and he does not plan to. He, he has created a family of those he trusts. In a weird way, him still being on Narshada is a refusal to move on, because despite his loathing and disdain for his heritage, 
Uh, he was born here, and so he has a connection here, and he can walk these streets blindfolded. Basically, he has been a member of most minor gangs or major gangs even on the lower levels, switching to whichever one seemed the most on top at any point in time. He never seeks a leadership position um, because he knows he'll be targeted because of his race. Uh, despite this, he seems to garner allies relatively easily, and the decades that have followed uh, has seen him want to strike out on his own. And so, despite his unwillingness to be a leader, uh, he has become the de facto leader of our main cast. Then we have Weld. Weld is a Nask. These are a race of small, furry, bat-monkey hybrid creatures. They were first introduced in the new canon, this is not something from the Expanded Universe, in a book written by Greg Rucka in 2015, and basically this was an editorial mandate. He had to put these in the book because they were a background alien in Force Awakens. Uh, I haven't watched it. I read the book, though. So, and I, I like them. I think they're funny. So, I brought them in. Uh, they are a sentient race, uh, but they, they look disgusting. They're monkey-bat hybrid creatures, and basically they're treated as pests throughout the galaxy. Weld isn't even this guy's real name, as his real name is completely unpronounceable to anybody that's not a Hask. So, uh, you know, Weld started as a slave to the Hutt cartel, working on the disgusting plumbing on Nalhutta, uh, before uh, his gift with machines was discovered. He was then elevated uh, in the slave ranks to uh, be a mechanic. A mechanic of all things. He fixes stuff, he engineers some stuff, but always he's Welds. Hence the name. Uh, working under the servitude of the Huts was miserable. Uh, he never had a family, as far as he knew. Uh, just the work. Uh, he talks quite quickly and, and often speaks to inanimate objects and even refers to himself in the third person. Because as well, when you're lonely and you talk to machines, well, that brings out strange behaviors. Weld finding himself part of the king was actually a happy accident uh, compared to the other ones. Uh, basically, his servitude was bought out by a biker gang on Nar Shida. And as he was being transported uh, to his new slave masters, uh, the biker gang's leader died of a heart attack mysteriously. And because the contract was to that Pacific gang leader, Weld found himself free by technicality. This is a man who's lived his entire life in slavery on a moon he's never been to. What is he supposed to do? And he basically started selling his services as mechanic. And uh, one day, this fearsome, wise, but charismatic, but prone to anger, Seth Pureblood walks in with his second command, who has a cybernetic eye who, that's on the fritz. So he fixes it. Lanaya gets her new eye. Sinto finds someone he can trust. I weld. Well, he's found a use for himself. So he joins the gang. And then finally of our core cast, we have MH7X, or just colloquially, Doc. This, uh, the MH model was a, a specialized medical droid created by the Zerka Corporation. Uh, Zerka Corporation is a long ongoing uh, organization in the Old Republic series. Uh, they have a seat on the, the Republic Senate at one point. They're a very shady corporation, height of horrible capitalists, all that kind of jazz. The Old Republic was the height of that. So, yay, corporate crazy people. This was in the time frame of their expansion. Uh, of this, you know, soon-to-be-known-as-great superpower. And so they wanted to branch out from their usual of weaponry 
uh, they were uh, formerly known as Circa Arms, to uh, do cybernetics and medical. This attempt was short-lived, however, uh, and was seen as a financial failure, thus seeing the firing of the current CEO. Uh, only 100 of droids were manufactured, and only 20 sold, um, and the rest being warehoused were scrapped entirely. MH7X, which means uh, the 70th one in production and manufacturing, uh, was one of the 20 sold. Uh, its use as a medical assistant, surgeon, and any number of practical medical applications was quickly discarded, as the fault in the line that caused its discontinuation was discovered. It detects death is life and life is death, so it operates on corpses and lets the living and the injured die. <laughs> so this defect basically caused the line to fail. And uh, Zerka the Stop Manufacturer, no one properly tested it. It was rushed to market, you know, as these things are. You know, um, gotta break a few eggs to make an omelette, right? As only 100 of them were made and 20 sold, the MH became a collector's item, an expensive one at that. However, the rich political fat cat from Coruscant, who won the MH7X in a Sabacc game, failed to read the data pad because he was so drunk he passed out, that activated the safety protocol. So MH7X operated on him in his sleep in an attempt to heal him because he detects life as death. So the poor rich political fat cat was dismembered in his sleep. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want something gory like that. I love it. <laughs> Over the years, MH7X has developed a personality due to not be memory wiped. Uh, and has basically begun a sense of guilt over his faulty systems. And seeks to repair... Um, this of its own accord. Unfortunately, uh, they've gained a reputation as an assassin droid, or perhaps if some stories are to be believed, a serial killer. Because of that, they have had repairs uh, with the wrong systems, the wrong parts. So, despite being a medical droid, they're now a Frankenstein's monster droid of all these different parts of different kinds of droids. But they still have the core personality of the medical droid, which means that they want to heal and to help. But it's faulty. And so, uh, basically, um, Weld found out about this guy and took him on his personal project to, to repair him. MH7X has no assigned gender because he's a medical droid. He accepts all uh, pronouns. He, she, it, they. He doesn't care. But most people just call them Doc. Uh, now are reoccurring characters. As this is envisioned as an ongoing comic series, uh, there, there will be many characters, minor and major, They'll come and go. Some will be there for specific storylines, whatever, but I want to have a handful of reoccurring characters that will be instantly recognizable as the raider. So our first is Tornak. Tornak is a obese female. The obese are a group of, uh, of aliens that dress themselves up in these weird-looking suits. You may recognize it because it's what Leia dressed up as to try and get Han Solo back from Jabba. Tornak... Uh, runs a gang that Sinto used to uh, be a part of. Uh, she and her gang pretty much are the de facto rulers of a certain level of Nashida uh, in a midsection, and uh, she is ruthless yet has a mother's heart. Uh, and not much is known about her backstory because she doesn't let things slip. But uh, to explain the ruthless but with a mother's heart, she has. She, she was a mother. Uh, she had two kids, and these two kids were seen to be Force-sensitive, so thus stolen by the Jedi, and and because they are refused attachment, they're no longer allowed to contact her mo their mother. So she is now childless uh, and feels complete and utter contempt for the Jedi and anger because her children were stolen from her, and, well, the Abyss have a history with the Jedi, and they hate their guts. 
And so this just doubles down on that. Then you have Brack. Uh, Brack is a big, ugly Torquay's hut of about 300 years old. He is a nobody, really. Uh, a member of the hut cartel that skates by on luck, political connections, and money. He thinks he's important and, and may one day be uh, you know, a major player in the Hut Cartel, but everyone around him knows that ain't going to ever happen. He oversees a few drug operations in the lower levels of Narshida and is uh, the main Hut contact for our core cast. Curiosity, um, you introduced a new alien race in your Star Trek pitch. So I figured I'll do the same. Alrighty. So this is a Curiosity is an original alien of my own creation are known as the Sensorite. The Curiosity is a Sensorite, a species of tall, long-limbed telepathic beings. They only have names based on senses and emotions, and experiences are their currency. They telepathically connect to an object that all Sensorites have, a sense orb. They upload memories and experiences to this orb and trade them to others in exchange for other experiences to upload. The entire race collects information in the form of memories, senses, emotions, thoughts, etc. Because of this, young Sensorites go on a pilgrimage and must not return uh, to their home world until they have found a unique experience to which to gift the leader of the Sensorium. Uh, Curiosity is a 749-year-old uh, Sensorite, a mere teenager in Sensorite terms. They trade experiences in exchange for others, uh, you know, earning income by letting others feel these experiences by telepathy. Uh, as such, they see much and they at least pretend to know all, uh, so it's not, uh, it's not out of the ordinary for our group to seek them out for information, uh, and they are gender neutral. Finally, in our cast, we have Niska. Niska is a Trandoshan, you should be well aware of them, but just in case they're a race of reptiles, as seen in Empire Strikes Back, who is a law enforcement officer. Yes, as crazy as it sounds, Noshida has laws. Laws written and controlled by the Huts. So basically crime, but crime is a form of law in its own way. Honor among thieves and all that. You know, he's a common HUD enforcer slash cop in the area in which uh, our main group operates in. He's nothing special, and depending on his mood, he might accept bribes to ignore things. But always, he's willing to brawl because he's the embodiment of police brutality. He loves to beat people up just because he finds it fun. Uh, and then that is our core cast. Now going to general structure, as I mentioned before when Josh was asking me a question, there's an ongoing comic series that I have no real end in the side. It's about the characters living in this world. Incredibly unlikely this would ever be possible at a big two uh, company with a big fr uh, franchise, but hey, let a man dream. Uh, so the, the structure of the comic is going to be a mixture, mostly using the Levitt's paradigm. For those who don't know, this was a comic plot structure, uh, you know, method devised by Paul Levitz, future president of DC Comics for many years, uh, when he was very young and working on Legion of Superheroes. The idea was to borrow from TV, but to make a, a, a more serialized structure. As most shows at the time uh, were episodic, this is the 70s and 80s, so you have an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and perhaps more, maybe a D and E, etc. Each plot gets it gets allocated a specific a page count and then rotates. So once plot A has been resolved, plot B upgrades to plot A, plot C upgrades to plot B, and so on. This allows to have ongoing arcs while also doing single issue stories or even getting a bit experimental. As such, most ongoing arcs are character related in Smuggler's Moon. They will be building in the background uh, as the gang deals with problems of the week, for lack of a better term. Most simple plots will last no more than one issue, but 
If it's something that deserves a little bit more screen time, I can spill over, but the cap should be about three issues. When a character's ongoing arc reaches a crisis point, it will become the main plot, and its resolution could be up to eight to ten issues. Uh, there will be arcs involving uh, non-character-specific stuff, but these are world-building stuff that will see the change of the status quo and thus will be flagged as important when they reach a crisis point. Um, so, to give an example of how this structure would work, one issue might include 16 pages on a heist that our main gang is involved in, two pages on how the heist affected the power hierarchy of that level of Narshida, and four pages of a character dealing with something personal. This gives us 22 pages, the average length of most comics. While some companies, such as Marvel, have switched to a 20-page format, uh, and other companies have begun publishing uh, more regularly prestige format books, which are 30 or more pages, uh, this, uh, you know, this is the, the general accepted page count. So I, 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 as a hypothetical, I just went for the easiest one to go for. Um, if the structure looks at all familiar, because it should, uh, this is because network television operates on this very structure. CSI, Law & Order, all that operates on this very structure, and this is what comics used to be like before they started writing for the trade paperback slash graphic novel because TV was, at the time, episodic, so uh, comics provided a more serialized but still episodic experience and was unique at that time frame, and that has since died out to be more serialized, writing for the trade, and uh, TV shows have gone likewise, uh, you know, writing full-season arcs uh, that end after one season. Any thoughts? Uh, I adore the character concepts. Uh, Lanaya, I can really see a kind of Greg Rucker influence with her. I can really picture these characters vividly. Uh, I've already expressed my love for MH7X. That's a brilliant concept. <laughs> uh, every great Star Wars story needs a, a quirky droid. And I forgot to use one for my story, so let's just retroactively say part two has one. Quick couple questions. Yes. Uh, what kind of voice do you imagine for MH7X? Would it be, you know, with droids, a lot of variety, some it's kind of posh British door droid, <laughs> some are kind of, you know, more standard robotic types. Uh, do you have a particular voice in mind for him? Or them? I, I put in there, except any pronouns, so you can use any of them. What, what do droids have to do with gender? They're just things, you know? <laughs> They'll accept anything. He goes by Doc, because that's easy. Uh, to rephrase for a better comic medium, like, how, is it, how would his sentences be portrayed? Yeah, I, I'm imagining a more... Uh, so, in in some of the older Dark Horse, uh, back when Dark Horse had the licensing uh, for Star Wars, they would do droid speak with um, a more rigid bubble than your more standard word, uh, word balloon. And the 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 font, I, forget, I don't remember what font they use, but they use a very specific font. Um, I would do that, but like the, I I would do like the the way Sandman's uh, voice is in the Sandman comic. To those who haven't read it, it's the inverse. So you have a you have a dark balloon rather than a white balloon with white text, and the balloon sort of scraggles out, not maintaining a proper shape it's to imply uh through the, the the way in which comics are structured and shown that sandman morpheus has a ethereal otherworldly voice and so what i would imagine is the traditional white background black text but the the balloon is scraggly and uh the the words are a little bit closer together uh rather than having a lot of space in between to sort of imply that his 
because he's a Frankenstein monster sort of uh, droid, you know, they they speak in the this very jumbled way, as though it, imagine Siri, you know, where where Siri takes words that aren't part of a sentence and tries to form a sentence artificially through words individually spoken. I think it's the best way to explain it. Cool. They speak quite formal or kind of be like a, a parody of a typical doctor, like the way they would speak in that uh, enunciated way, posh or something like that. Um, I, I just mentioned a, uh, just an ordinary sounding, not not Anthony Daniel C-3PO, a, sort of a mishmash between Van and HK-47 from the Night of the Old Republic series, uh, who speaks in this very angry American uh, to contrast Anthony Daniel's very posh British. And so I just imagine sort of a transatlantic sort of niche of that. Alrighty. And for Curiosity the Sensorite, uh, I like his concept a lot. Uh, what I'm wondering though is, is the Sensorite connection to Doctor Who deliberate? Uh, an influence on it? Because there's also Sensorites of Doctor Who. I remembered that after I made the character. Um, basically, I've uh, I've been uh, a long time ago. I had created a D and D world of my own creation for my players, and some of those ideas I've regurgitated. And I had one. It was based on there was a game I played in which there was this um, this group called I forget what they're called. I think it may have been the Sensorium, where they're all about archiving experiences. And there was people will know what I'm talking about well, in Planescape Torment, which is a video game. There is a brothel. That you can go to called um, the, the brothel of I believe it's like ideas and experiences. And instead of you know hiring a sex worker to sleep with, they talk to you and they memorize your stories and then they upload the stories to the sensorium. That they they are about intellectual pursuits rather than the carnal desires. And I always thought that was such a cool idea and such a unique take. And so that's sort of melded in my head over the years. And um, uh. I have created this alien race called the Sensorites in uh, other, my own created stuff. And so I just ported them over here. Uh, as this is a hypothetical, it'll never happen. So, you know, just like, here's an idea I had from a long ass time ago, throw it in here. I had no connection to Doctor Who. Uh, I remember that story very vaguely. Just fact they're also telepathic. I just, I just wondered if there was a <laughs> intentional hint or an accidental... <laughs> subconscious memory bubbling up <laughs> yeah, it was completely accidental i was just you know, i wanted like a race that was built on the way we archive experience that would be basically a living memory you you think about the way in which uh like the library of alexandria when it burned we lost so much we as humanity have strived to make that better um in the middle ages uh we were transcribing a lot of stuff translating a lot of stuff for the specific purpose of keeping it circulated so that the library of alexandria wouldn't happen again and so my idea is, in a galaxy-spanning thing, would it be an archive or would it be a living memory? And so basically the, the idea is that these people are a living database, an archive. Brilliant. They sound like a very beautiful ideology on such a corrupt world. That's a fantastic juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you've created really distinct personalities here, uh, and I'm intrigued to see what stories to go in. I, I only have about six issues slash arcs. Uh, in any kind of detail. So here we go. So the first one is both an issue and an arc. It's part of an ongoing arc, but there's going to be an issue within that arc that shares its name. It's called Daughter of Mine. This will be the culmination of the Elias family drama, and I want this to happen relatively early on, so let's say about issue 12. So the idea is that Lanaya will uh, be reunited with her family in tragedy. Her mother has passed away. 
Her father has lost his business, um, and the whole family is in a bit of turmoil right now. Lanaya will have to deal with the, the conflicted feelings of, that come with her family after being disowned, and also being a wanted criminal, and all that fun stuff that comes with that kind of drama. And then, uh, by the end of the issue that shares this name, Lanaya will have redeemed herself in the eyes of her father, but because the Achani are matriarchal, he cannot restore her name. And so, uh, and by the end of the arc as a whole, um, she will have exposed her sister as a corrupt politician. Her brother uh, has been secretly trading technology with other groups on her behalf to, to pay people off. And uh, her sister has started a relationship with the Mandalorian squad leader that took her eye. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so the end of the arc um, basically is Lanaya uh demands a rematch with this Mandalorian and this time wins. Also taking his eye, being his her sister's lover, exposes her sister, and takes on a new name. She is now Lanaya Crawl. Sinto um adopts her and her father. Her brother and her sister go off into ignominy, having lost the power of being having been exposed and joined a Mandalorian clan and may return in some future art. The next one is a single issue. Uh, this is called Between the Light and the Dark. Uh, this is an issue focused entirely on Sinto and Bornak. Uh, some of the, most of the other characters will not feature in any major roles, may have a pop-in cameo, but that's about it. Uh, this is going to happen about issue 7. So Sinto and Tornak have been developing a bit of a romance in the previous six issues. And uh, you know this, this is them bonding, and they're talking about their hatred of everything Force-related, and they go out on, like, this fucked-up criminal date, and they find this young Jedi Padawan, and the rest of the issue is focused on them torturing and killing this Jedi Padawan. And basically, we treat the torture and the killing of this Jedi Padawan as, like, this form of sex for them, basically. It, it's it's perverse. It's, it's disgusting, but it's also beautiful. It's also all these sort of fucked-up, conflicting feelings. It's basically their first kiss or their first night together, their one night stand. Uh, and the, the the tone I want to go for is there is a issue slash episode name in Black Lagoon called Calm Down Two Men, where Revy and Rock, these two opposing ideological characters who come together, who see something in each other they both want, basically begin to bash heads. And at the end of it, once they've resolved their problems through a brawl that almost ended with one of them shot, they light each other's cigarettes. It symbolically says they are now a couple conjoined in their ideas. And so I want that to feel like that. This is the cigarette kiss. I had a massive grin on my face during that whole time. And my brain was like, I should not be grinning at this. This is disturbing. But the way yep. it's just describing it, it's just... It sounds uh, so unique. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't think Disney Plus will be doing that anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of new direction you want for this series. Uh, you know, <laughs> brilliant. And then uh, this is a single issue, but it is also the beginning of an arc. It will upgrade a slow burn to major plot arc. So it's called Doctor's Orders. It's told primarily through flashbacks. Uh, and the placement... Uh, uh, let's say is about issue 25, so after some of the major arcs, because this is going to be uh, one of the, the major big ones that, you know, depending on how many issues I get, might be the final arc. So, throughout a large chunk of the series, we uh, have been getting hints of Doc's true purpose, and the shady nature of the Zerker Corporation. One day, as well as repairing 
Doc, uh, he discovers a seemingly redundant part that activates when he fiddles with it. In flashbacks, we see the creation of the EMH model, and specifically EMH7X. And we learn that the defect in which he sees death as life and life as death was intentional. Uh, that this was placed here by a corporate, uh, a corporate engineer who worked on the MH project, the MH creator, in fact, as a form of corporate warfare because he had a uh, extra grind with Zerka, and was intentionally trying to fuck with their, their, uh, you know, their company, and he was working for them under a false name. And we learn about why that's a thing, what's going on there, and we're left with the question at the end of the issue, which begins the arc: Who was this creator? Why did this happen? What's the true name? Then we have a single issue, one-shot story called Welded Together. Uh, this is a this is a one-shot place between two major arcs to lighten the mood. It's gonna be a comedy issue. Can go anywhere. Uh, but for the sake of this pitch, let's place it between Daughter of Mine and Doctor's Orders. You know, this is a the comedy issue in which Weld falls in love with a Twi'lek prostitute. And it's an absurd story of puppy love, the parasocial relationship formed between sex workers and their regular clients, and will notably have a guest artist. I want a guest artist that taps into that 50s uh, romance comic feel of that old, you know, Archie feel. And um, I'm thinking someone like Joe Quinones, uh, who's an artist known for his exaggerated cartoonish style. You may recognize him from the 2016 era Howard the Duck. Or um, when I, my first introduction to him, Black Canary and Zatanna Bloodspell, uh, which was a graphic novel done by him and Paul Dini. Uh, that was a fun buddy cop uh, comedy piece with Black Canary and Zatanna. And the issue ends with Weld alone, uh, leaving the comedic story on a sour note uh, to show that in Smuggler's Moon, happy endings are rare and always come with a price. Then uh, we have uh, a single issue again called Life on the Street. This is intended to be a day in the life sort of issue. With some additional hooks added, this could make for a very good opening issue, so this could be my first issue. Uh, basically, the gang get a simple job, transport a box of goods uh, th that, are, that they are not allowed to look at from the middle of Narshada to one of the, one of the top levels with a big casino. Uh, basically, this is the movie The Warriors mixed with Pulp Fiction. It's a thrill ride of action from start to finish as, the, as all sorts of enemies come gunning for our main characters and they have to fight to survive while they're holding onto this MacGuffin. And um, they arrive injured... Uh, but alive, and they give this this box to uh, to Niska, who says Brack thanks them for their service. And realizing that this was all set up by the Huts, they get really fucking pissed, as basically they were put in danger by the very people who run this moon. This was a game, and a game in which they could have very well died. Um, and of note, neither we nor our main characters ever find out what's in that box. It's a MacGuffin. Then we have my final one, which is sort of a mini-arc, it's three issues, called Curiosity Killed Them All. Three-issue arc, uh, which will introduce Curiosity and kickstart a lot of the character arcs that will continue for the rest of the series. There's a lead into Between the Light and the Dark, so issue four through six, with issue seven being Between Light and Dark. So the first issue of this arc is focused on Lanaya and Sento as they go to Curiosity on information regarding what happened in that first issue with the box and what's going on with the hell with Brack. And they, as with curiosity, you know, one experience in exchange for another. So um, each of them have to give an experience to receive an experience back. So for Lanaya, she gives curiosity the duel and the disownment of her family, uh, which we see in flashbacks. For Sinto, uh, you know, he gifts uh, being chased by a fanatical young Jedi 
when he was a teenager, which we see in flashbacks, and then the second issue will be Weld and Doc, looking for a trader Pacific droid parts uh, that are decades old, uh, and they hope Curiosity knows the guy. However, as Doc is a droid, can't be connected to telepathically, um, Curiosity finds a different way to do this. So uh, Weld will give his time as a slave, specifically when he found himself free uh, via technicality, which we'll see in flashback. Doc will narrate their time uh, during their heavily hinted at serial killer phase. We, the reader, see the kill as the rich political fat cat senator from his backstory, but Doc conveniently omits this from his narration, so we, the reader, know something that the others do not. And basically, they they get their they get their stuff, and because of the way in which Doc had to give their the testimony, it wasn't recorded correctly. So we're left up in the air about that, which will lead into Doctor's orders when we get to that. Um, the third issue of this arc, this mini arc, which will be the final one, uh, is basically the aftermath. Each character basically has to deal with these feelings that they've conjured up in themselves, one one experience in exchange for another. Uh, and reconnect to their past and deal with it. This is causing tensions in the gang uh, and will result in the ongoing character arcs that I have mentioned above. The issue ends with, uh, with Curiosity uploading these experiences to their sense sphere, and the reader is left wondering what Curiosity's true intentions are. Are they good? Are they bad? Something in between? What the hell's going on here? What is the sensorium? What is this all about? And then the next issue would be between Light and Dark, and then uh, Daughter of Mine, etc. So that that's all the issues I really have, and arcs I really have. There's plenty more that aren't as detailed, so I didn't feel like including them. Um, and uh, this experiment uh, with this pitch was to be a bit more open-ended, like your Star Trek one, where you pitch the characters, you pitch the setting, you pitch the tone, and then you pitch a handful of episodes. I wanted to do the similar thing here because I want to have a flavor for a storytelling style that's been dying out, as well as, I think, something like this that has the variety and the characters and the tone could really invigorate my love of this franchise that I used to love deeply and now kind of have apathy towards. And so I wanted to be a bit more open and structured than, say, my Star Trek pitch, which is very much strict, rigid, this is the story, this is the way it's going to be told, you know, this is much more about feelings and character and just sort of living in the world that's been established. That's me done. Terrific. Uh, you've given me a taste of something I really want more of now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any specific questions regarding the issues? How will this work, like, uh, graphic novel reprinted-wise? Like, how many issues per volume would you say I, I i would say it really depends like uh the, the common length of a trade paperback anymore is four to six issues um but if the run is good enough sometimes it'll do more than that uh for instance uh daredevil by brian michael bendis and alex Maleev is almost 20 issues per uh, trade and it's collected in three trades and uh collects the whole run i would like something like that but i know that's next to next impossible so i, I would say about six to ten issues per trade really i really like the dark comedy aspect you've got going on here because uh, mm -hmm. you know star wars is dark you know we've been talking about how it can be quite a fairy tale with all these wizards and you know space nazis uh you know there's a bit of a western flair in there sometime you know with a Cantino. Uh, yeah, it's nice to see that aspect of the, you know, criminally underbelly thrown in here. You've got some really vivid characters I can imagine living in here. 
Uh, Nile Hutter is a place I've been looking into for a possible future project. So that, that has timed up very nicely here. Uh, and you're right, it should have been in Boba Fett. Uh, it's, you know, they kept teasing us with all this, uh, you know, the criminal underbelly. We'd see the legacy of the huts. And then, but they just stuck us on Tatooine the whole time with just yep. a few snippets of generic off-world places with, uh, you know, Mandalore. You know. His name's Jin, but we all just call him Mandalore. Uh, you've given us a great picture here of a great potential. Yeah, it, it, and that is something, by the way, that I would, like, like speaking of the Mandalore, since we have Mandalorian connections in this, and I would not touch the Darksaber with a 10-foot pole. I think that was very, how do I put this? Small world syndrome. Um, basically, in the old, old, old expanded universe, the Mandalorians were a warrior culture that inherited an armor. Um, it was it was a helm specifically of the it was, it was the it was the lineage of these great warriors. And then, because apparently all anybody knows of Star Wars is lightsabers, they turned it in the new canon to a dark saber, a Mandalorian who became a Jedi. And I found that boring and stupid and just i have no interest in it so if i do have a mandalore in here he'll make no mention of the dark saber long before then he's going to be wearing the helm of the mandalore that actually takes me to a question i meant to ask earlier uh for the mandalorian you talked about earlier part of lanai's backstory uh the one who loses his own eye in the fight would he be recurring after that or would that would that arc be his one and done uh, the nice payoff. Payoff. I, I would mention that would be the payoff, but as I said, that because I I have a more free flowing aspect, I did set it up where her sister could come back, and because her sister is involved with that Mandalorian, that Mandalorian could very well come back. You know, I I don't have any specific set idea for it. I don't want to get too heavily involved. I love the Mandalorians as a concept back in the original you know, expanded universe before they've been changed significantly. I love my space Spartans. And um, I would love to explore that old style of Mandalorian because I can get away with that. Since it's 3,000 some odd years before uh, Episode 4, I can get away with their culture being different. And um, But I'm not too fussed about it. I was just curious because I could picture him as quite a, an intriguing foil. Uh, someone whose arc and can kind of parallel than I is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's that's fair. I, I I like that you I like that you're leaving it open ended. It leaves a lot of wiggle room in, in my mind and hopefully the viewers, the listeners. Yeah, like I said, it's a, it's an open ended pitch, much like your Star Trek one. I just wanted something different, but also just something that was that was in that same tone that I've been looking for because I've just been noticing that a lot of my problems with Star Wars has been. I just can't get an interest because it's all original trilogy stuff, and I just. I have no interest in that time frame, and I have no interest in those to- that tone of the scrappy rebels versus the evil dictatorship. I just don't care. And so I wanted something that was a bit more up my alley that I used to have in the Expanded Universe. And uh, because of that, that led to a more open-ended pitch. All right, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed these pitches. This is the penultimate uh, episode of this season. We're doing these in five-episode batches. Uh, and so our next episode is going to be our season finale, and our season finale is going to be the same across all seasons. And the idea is to do a introspective, retrospective kind of thing on the previous pitches. The idea is that 
Josh will take one of my pitches from the previous four episodes and expand upon it, whether doing a prequel, a sequel, a spinoff, what have you, just taking that core concept and doing his own spin on it, and vice versa for me. I will take one of his four pitches, I will expand upon it, doing a prequel, sequel, spinoff, whatever, do my own spin on the ideas, and uh, we will converge and pitch each other's pitches of the other's pitches. Um, and this will be a nice way to crown off each season going forward. Uh, and so uh, we shall see you then. Bye. Yeah.